0: Hey deserving listeners, today's episode we're going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer and the Dark Tetrad. If you don't remember Jeffrey Dahmer, he was the fella who was caught, I believe in the 90s, of having been a serial killer and although serial killers are often quite sensationalized in the news and focused on by us as a public, the particulars of the Dahmer case was particularly sensational to the uh, news media because he there's a lot of details about it that were particularly over the top for example he would eat his victims sometimes he would have sex with trigger warning everybody this is a this is going to have some uh, some rough details uh he would have sex with the dead bodies he also lured uh predomin, or only Men. He was. uh, He would look. He would go to gay bars and he would lure men, gay men, back to his home. And a lot in. Although Jeffrey Dahmer was white, most of his victims were African American fellas. And uh, so it's just all these details about it that were quite interesting. And so I thought we would talk about that today. And the Dark Tetrad uh, is the four personality traits that are associated with quote-unquote evil behavior in human beings. So, I th- so we'd go over that. But the reason why we're talking about this is because Kristen, a listener to the podcast, asked that uh, we talk about it. So Kristen, please introduce yourself.
1: Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Kirsten Palmer, and I am just finishing off my third year at the University of British Columbia, and uh, the reason why uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is a subject of conversation is not only am I a listener of the podcast for quite a long time now, um, which greatly helps supplement my studies my personality class, we got to pick a person that we had to sort of write a psychobiography about. And I chose Jeffrey Dahmer not only because he is is one of probably the most written about serial killers in history, but just due to the fascination how he differs himself or he's different from others in his necrophilic and um, sadist cannibalistic actions. And I Thought of nobody better to discuss this with in helping me write a paper of you. So I'm really happy to be discussing him with you today. This is really exciting.
0: Everyone else is picking people like Donald Trump.
1: Exactly. They're picking people from even from fictitious characters from The Walking Dead or, you know, anybody they want.
0: And meanwhile, you're picking Jeffrey Dahmer, which might say something about you. I don't know.
1: No, it it is actually funny. And I was actually listening to your podcast earlier today that you did on Manson. And it was really, I could definitely fit into that group of people. Like you were talking about how everyone in front of the Mona Lisa and sort of that's the same way they are with Manson. It's like the society has this fascination with serial killers. And I guess I would fall into that. But being that I'm a psychology major and I'm want to focus on personality disorders. I should have said that earlier. I just find the the rationale and the reasonings and, and the, the, the biological underpinnings of these individuals extremely fascinating. And, you know, I, especially when it comes to Dahmer and his behavior is just something I have a hard time. I find it really interesting and I really want to comprehend why.
0: Yeah. No judgment. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Uh, having, been suggested that we talk about this i have done a mini deep dive on him and been uh glad to have i mean glad is a weird word but (laughs) interested in the material there's a lot there and um i mean the interesting thing about him was in terms of a psychobiography is that he was seemingly readily truthful with interviews
1: Mm
0: -hmm. upon being incarcerated and was, as opposed to like someone like Ted Bundy who was frequently trying to throw people off the scent. For example, with Ted Bundy, he always held that his, if, if from my understanding of the case, that his childhood was fine. Whereas mm-hmm. Dahmer ta- spoke uh, a lot about how his childhood was actually really difficult. Mm-hmm. And without Dahmer's account of that, you wouldn't have known that really. You would have just known that his parents... Divorced, but you know that's pretty common. There's not a huge uh, anomaly there. But with Dahmer's account himself, you learn that his parents fought uh, emotionally with each other throughout his entire life. That um, he went through a lot of difficulties during his life. I mean, do you want to get into that right now? Actually, Those yeah,
1: di- let's do it. I mean, there's you're right. There's a ton of information on on, uh, you're right. He was very open. And I mean, again, we have to wonder how much is honest, but he was very forthright in talking about his childhood and he endured a lot of trauma, which seems to be something that is we see over and over again with these individuals. So I'd be more than happy to talk about that.
0: Yeah. Um, I find his interviews to be very believable. There are several, uh, fact or, the the inter, the one interview I really watched last night was when he was on Inside Edition mm-hmm. uh, with a young Bill O'Reilly as one of the co-hosts of that show, and I found that the interview uh, I I thought Jeffrey Dahmer was being as honest as he could. the The newspersons kept trying to make it seem like Dahmer was this super Machiavellian person. But I found him to just be like, I, I have a compulsion that I can't control. And it's a good thing that I've been prisoned because if you let me out, I'd do it again, probably. And that's something that you'll hear from people like this when they're being honest. Because they have every reason to say that they wouldn't, right? They have a lot of reasons to say, no, I, I'm totally fine now. And I didn't even really do it. I mean, that's what Ted Bundy said. He said he didn't even do it for many, many years. Um, so anyway, yeah. So let's get into his childhood. Uh, what do you know about his childhood?
1: Um, well, what I do know is that, I mean, what I've looked at was about his mother. She actually suffered from depression. She, um, I know during the actual, when she was actually pregnant with Jeffrey, she suffered from some s- sort of disassociative states. Uh, her doctor actually, um, I mean, there's so much to go into her doctor actually said that she was foaming at the mouth. And um, these different states that she would go into were definitely psychological, not physical, but then prescribed her with a large amount of medication in which she took while she was pregnant with Jeffrey, um, which you have to wonder if that, you know, (laughs) what effects that had. Um, And then after his birth, both parents or his father said that, or I think Jeffrey said that he felt that he was very unwanted by both parents. His father was very distant um, while his mother was very neglectful, um, leaving him alone a lot of the time. So,
0: Yeah, exactly. She was taking tranquilizers, morphine, barbiturates. These are powerful uh, psychoactive substances that have known, Potential effects on developing fetus, uh, fetuses. And it was known that she took these during her first trimester, which is the most sensitive to a developing child. Um, so, yeah, she also, not only was she depressed and having somatic issues, but she was so depressed that she was hospitalized. So, that means she was suicidal and was a significant risk of hurting, of killing yourself. Exactly. So, you know, people experience depression. They have postpartum depression. It's a very common thing. But to rise to the extreme level of being hospitalized, she must have been severely depressed and likely was at least somewhat depressed, if not moderately depressed throughout Jeffrey Dahmer's early childhood. And so what this mm. means is that, and then the father was working and traveling a lot. And even when he was home, he was distant, like you say. And also when he was home, the parents fought all the time. So the that's the early conditions under which Jeffrey Dahmer was developing. And um, to put this in attachment language is you're two years old and you are you know, needing human interaction. And he doesn't have any siblings at this point, so he's just alone. Dad's gone. Mom is in the hospital or is in bed all the time. Because when you're when you're depressed severely, and this was the reports of the mother, was she just wouldn't leave the bedroom. She would just stay in bed all day and sleep. And if she's on all these medications, it might have drained her energy as well. And From what I know, there was no support, no extended family, no social worker coming to the house, no family therapist, nothing at all. And so you're there, you're one year old, you're two year old, you're three year old, and there's no one to interact with. There's no one to reflect your emotions. There's no one to reach out to. There's no one to hold you. There's no one to laugh with you. You're just neglected, alone, scared, left to your own devices, angry, resentful. Unbridled emotion, no way to soothe yourself. This is the uh, the attachment experience of people like this, and a lot of these serial killers have these kinds of backgrounds, like like Charlie Manson and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, other things from the ch- their childhood, from his childhood, that I found in a report was that there was no reported physical abuse or sexual abuse. You know, because they often thought, well, he must have been sexually abused, right? Um, but here's the thing, like here's my overall thesis upon doing a little deep dive on him is that people often see these sorts of people as having some kind of inherent thing wrong with them, like they were born this way or you know the quote unquote sociopath. It's like they're this other species of creature that emerges from the genetic pool and wreaks havoc on on our society and there's nothing that could could have been done. Um, obviously, there are people who don't hold that exact paradigm, but but that's often what's believed. But from my opinion, and there's no way to know because we would have to experiment on humans to to discover this. But from my estimation, yeah, he went through significant attachment disruptions, massive attachment injuries, and lack of attention get you know love and attunement as a child. And then he went through all these physical problems. So he was uh, frequently sick. He had a lot of infections, ear infections, and other kinds of infections. So he, he was in a lot of pain. And then he went through a lot of treatments. And then he also had a hernia when he was three years old, and he had to have surgery. And so they had to cut into him, and he had to go to the hospital. Imagine that. You're three years old. I mean, I'm... 48 years old, if I had to have surgery for hernia, I would be terrified. If I'm three years old, I just can't imagine, especially without the attunement from his parents, without any uh, trust that other people love him and care for him, being thrown into a hospital, uh, put under the knife. And then, you know, when you have hernia surgery, you have to stay in the hospital for a while. It's Mm -hmm. very painful. And he was very much aware of that. And he worried about his penis being cut off because he wasn't really quite sure what they were going to do to him. They didn't understand what they had done to him.
1: I'm actually really glad you brought that up. The whole hospital situation. One, we will, I don't think there's time to get into this, but I was, I'm sort of attaching his early, his early experiences in the hospital, not only with attachment theory, but then again to Freud, which is a whole next level of discussion. But there's a lot of discussion, talk about his time in the hospital and that he, had actually spoken to his mother. I think he just said this, they thought he'd cut off his penis. I mean, you know, and there was other um, instances at the hospital where he had a lot of, um, of manipulation around his, his buttocks and his anal area, which was extraordinarily painful. And you're right for a three-year-old, that's coming from a household that is unloving, um, you know, distant without that need for affection or that without that affection that a child so desperately needs it, it must have been i would be i like you said i would be terrified now and for a little child to go through that the combination i mean it's just it's a recipe we're just i feel like it, we can see the steps leading to what he the man he became
0: right so my hypothesis is that he suffered from disorganized attachment he was never assessed for attachment. He was assessed for a lot of other things, but they definitely recognized the assessors that he suffered from attachment-like issues, the language they were using, but they never actually used attachment language, pr- primarily because it wasn't a, a dominant idea to be assessing for at the time and still is it to some extent. But anyway, I would I would contend that he has distor- disorganized attachment and he had reasons to be that way, uh, meaning that, As he was developing into later childhood and into adulthood, he didn't know how to attach to other people. He didn't know how to trust other people. He didn't know how to trust himself. He didn't like himself. That was another thing that he expressed. uh, And I believe that he deeply hated himself Mm -hmm. and had always hated himself. And so, uh, difficulty relating to other people, difficulty understanding social cues. Some people in recent years have suggested he might've had autism. I don't think he had autism.
1: I don't either. I've, I read a couple of, of reports online, quite a few, but I, I as well, I don't think he had autism.
0: Right. It, to me, it's uh, much more salient or convincing that he had disorganized attachment. And a lot of people will say like, well, isn't that autism? It's like, no, autism is a very no. different sort of condition. It's genetic. It's, it's much more biological and there's enough reasons to uh point us in the direction of the attachment disorganized attachment theory hypothesis than autism. plus he was assessed by at least a dozen different mental health people at the time, and none of them concluded none of them none of them suggested autism at all, so I don't know um. And he also doesn't present as, I mean, he presents as someone who is very sad and he presents as someone who doesn't relate well to other people, but that doesn't mean someone has autism anyway. So, so yeah, he, so then he grows up and he, he has all this baggage with him, disorganized attachment, mistrust of others, hatred of himself, resentment of other people. Match that up with his trauma upon being cut open, invaded and prodded and, looked at from a very early age and completely left to his own devices. I mean, I've, I've been with kids who have been through stuff like this, even in good parents, you know, with good parents, and the kids always retain some level of trauma from that. There's always some ripple effect in their personality later
1: I would think there would be sorry to drop I would think there would be an extreme distrust of others too if you have that lack of attachment that lack of you know object relations talks about you know attaching to that object and if you're if you don't have that and then you're around a bunch of medical professionals and it's cold and you're isolated and you don't have that ability to control or autonomy you know I would think isolation and loneliness would just fester
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just—it just gives me chills to think about like how horrible it would have. I mean, the analogy is all of us. When we take our kids to the physician, particularly when they're two, three, four years old, they're often really quite afraid. You you hand over your young child to the physician, and then if the physician has to do something uncomfortable, or even give them a shot or something, children often are really quite upset by it, and you're standing right there you're like right in front of your child going everything's going to be okay honey this is just going to hurt a little bit but it's good medicine and it's going to help you and and sometimes you can distract your child enough so that they don't notice what's happening but but if they're somewhat aware they're they're really quite upset and scared and you just see the terror in their on their face and because they're not old enough to be able to understand or to regulate themselves and and uh, so all of that so times that one, times a, a thousand, just given the amount of trauma that he went through, just on the details. But then times that, times another thousand, because his parents were probably not there for him and had never been there for him. So, you know, that's a secure child looking to you, crying because they're about to get a vaccine at the age of three. They're like, ah! and they're looking at you and they're crying and they're terrified. Imagine Dahmer having going, gone through the neglect he went through. And then, going through all that surgery and all that horribleness, it, 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 so. he grows up into uh, later childhood and, and, and adolescence. And guess what? He has a hard time relating to other people. He's very sad, very isolating, very sullen. and he is fascinated with the insides of animals. you know right. He, he finds dead animals around in the neighborhood and brings them back home and likes to look into their insides.
1: Now, wasn't it his father who actually started introducing him to the whole biology and the underpinnings? That's something I read that it's actually his father had something to do with that.
0: Interesting. Yeah. There's, there's some interesting transference issues in terms of that. Uh, I didn't read that one, but that would make some sense. But he was also really fascinated with chemistry, which his dad, his dad was a chemist and, and so, or a professor of chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. So the, uh, so there seems to be some, which would make sense that you're a child, you are really desperate for your parental love and you always have been that you would have some, some, what we call invisible loyalties of like, please, if I, if I act like you, then maybe you'll pay attention to me. Um, but so it makes sense to me that, uh, when we look at, at his later behavior, that, he was interested in the viscera, the, you know, the guts and the insides of these animals, because in a similar way that when we are sexually abused, we will sometimes abuse sexually or we will uh, be attracted to abusers. Part of this is because we're returning to the source of our trauma as a way of trying to gain power over it. And so he likely was returning to the source of his trauma by returning to the insides of bodies in an attempt to gain some control over it some it's sort of like the analogy that all of us i think can relate to well i guess it i guess it kind of relates to a fascination with with Jeffrey Dahmer himself you know right. people like Jeffrey Dahmer freak us out
1: oh absolutely i mean i'm like in all of the documentation i've, I've read so far it's not only can I not get enough, but I'm continually mystified by this. I mean, necrophilia, cannibalism, sadism, it's just, you try to wrap your head around this. And as a young psychology student, it's it's still, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I look to you. I mean, how do you, that's why I've come to you to talk about him because it's just, I feel I will... I mean, one day, maybe I might understand it, but I guess is this just part of human nature that we are just all going to be very fascinated by somebody like him as a case study
0: yeah, well, let me know how your journey goes because <laughs> i 've been on a similar journey, and i feel I feel like enough study actually does provide some understanding of some level i i don't i don 't have the answer as to why these people exist i mean right. part of, part of it is accepting that that answer just isn't available to us exactly um because of the thousand other boys who went through the exact same childhood in his state that that year only one of them decided to kill anybody so exactly. it's like what was different about Dahmer? It's just, it's just hard to know. Exactly. Uh, but our fascination with people like Jeffrey Dahmer, I think is kind of related to the way Jeffrey Dahmer was, was fascinated with the insides of animals and eventually humans, was that when, we, when we're afraid of something, we, as a way of coping with it, we go to it and study it. We, we want to look at it and say, like, if I, if I can figure this out, it gives me a sense of safety and power over it. And a sense of mastery over it. We, we we basically have two choices. We can either completely go into denial and avoid the whole thing, which many of us do, rationally speaking, or we can go toward it and try to own it. And so our movement towards Jeffrey Dahmer, towards Ted Bundy, is a towards Charlie Manson is a way of like, if I understand it, I'll feel safer. Which many of us it actually can achieve that, but not always. And so Jeffrey Dahmer, in my theory was going toward the viscera as a way of trying to cope with the severe anxiety and trauma that he went through in relation to his own viscera being exposed to the world you know
1: you're a, you've nailed it it's like you know he that lack of, you know, the hospitalizations and the lack of control and love in his family life, it's sort of, he needs this power to dominate and control others. And then he's sort of attracted to destructive, you know, destructiveness and death. And it's very technical and, and, um, uh, distant and mechanical for him. Um, because it feels like that was a way to cope with the loneliness. And just, you're right. I think you completely nailed it there.
0: Right. And so the dominant f- fantasy that emerges, which is a very common thing for serial killers, is to have chronic daydreaming and fantasy, mm-hmm. is to dominate others. And he would talk about that. He would say, I was from an early age, I had this compulsion to dominate others. And it became part of my sexual fantasy, like to be. Graphic. he would, I'm guessing, masturbate to fantasies of rape, essentially, and yep. of, of controlling other people. And when we go back to his childhood in terms of control, imagine how out of control he would feel through the medical procedures, through being alone at home and not being taken care of, feeling at the whim of other people's uh, control in a really, really horrific way. You could say that just in the one instance of him having surgery on him, that as his third, his three-year-old brain interpreted it as him essentially being physically raped by all these medical people. I mean, three-year-olds don't have the ability to understand what's happening to them, but and he and the three-year-old wouldn't have said that, you know, I'm being raped. But the vibe, I'm guessing, would have been the same. And so you one you learn that the world is like that from an early age. You're like, Oh, I see people. It's okay to violate other people's bodies. It's okay to not care about how they feel. That's how the world works. That's my working model in terms of Bulby's attachment theory, working model. We have a working model that the world is a terrible, horrible place that rapes and abuses and invades other people's bodies. I see that's how the world works and then, uh, and the, and also you have this complex around needing attachment. So it all becomes jumbled up into one thing where he associated attachment. And I, and I really detected that in the way that he talked and his behavior. But the way he talked is that he was deeply alone and wanted to be close. And that was his whole thing when he would talk about why he did what he did was he didn't want people to leave him. And I found I find Dahmer to be such a great case to study because he's one of the only serial killers who admits to his attachment needs. Uh, Ted Bundy does this too a little bit, uh, in but you have to sort of read between the lines in terms of his account of his early relationships with women and because he did have girlfriends, you know, when he was in college age in his twenties, and how devastated he was when he was dumped. But Dahmer is just out in the open. He he would, you know I. I just couldn't handle being alone and I wanted these people to be with me. Now when we look at his behavior it's like what, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you killed them, you kept their body parts, you ate them, you brought them with you to work. You I mean he brought one of the heads to work with him.
1: Oh, uh, I yeah, I mean I read I just I mean anybody that's interested <laughs> there's a plethora of online and some really really good um Psychoanalytic or um, psychological evaluations of it. I mean, one of them, one of the reports, um, he used to draw little penises on the bodies before engaging in sex with them. I mean, this is after they're obviously after they've just they're dead. I mean, it's quite graphic. But again, yeah,
0: yeah. The the analogy that I think I don't know if people can relate to is when. When we, none of us, or very few of us would actually go this far in our mind, but if I could maybe hopefully relate it, I'm trying to help people relate to Dahmer on some way, yeah. <laughs> is that when we are alone and we feel alone, think of like, you you're not in a romantic relationship. So listeners out there, think of a time when you didn't have a romantic relationship and your friends weren't particularly close to you and you just felt alone. Um, I think most of us can relate to the idea of like a fantasy of if I could just get someone to stay with me for a while, I could convince them that I'm lovable. I could show them that I'm worthy of love and, and loyalty and attachment. If I could, if I could just get someone past date two or three, I could really show them that I'm worthy of love. Yeah. I I think a lot of people can relate to that. Right.
1: Well, one of the things that I read in, um, from Jeffrey Dahmer's statements is that he does speak about being extremely disappointed in love, being, um, worried that he was unlovable. His sex life was unsatisfactory. And so these overwhelming feelings of, um, loneliness and need for companionship was so strong um, and the envy of others. So therefore he chose these dead bodies was sort of like this fantasy or this entity that wouldn't reject him.
0: Exactly. And when you have disorganized attachment, when you're pushed up against the wall and you're like, no one will ever love me. I don't know how to relate to people. It's never going to work. And I'm, gay and society hates gay people. So even if I was able to somehow like be able to socialize with people, it's still not going to work because I hate the fact that I'm attracted to men and society hates that, you know, there's just so many things working against him that he landed on a behavior, which was to get some level of attachment from people in a way that was the only way he thought he could, which was to, to dominate them and keep them uh, to force them to, to be with him right. uh, and, and then eventually kill them. And then he really possessed them. And then mm-hmm. not only to keep, th- to kill them, but then he would try to preserve them so that he could really keep them. And then once it, if he couldn't preserve them, then he would keep their skulls having been cleaned. And then he would put them in his, in his apartment. So he could be with them and, and, he would bring them to work. It's, you know, people look at that and they're like, a total sicko, and he is. But all I can think when I see that is someone who, you know, in a totally weird, twisted way, him bringing a head to work was the same as when you're at work and you text your spouse. And you're like, how are you doing? You know? A
1: hundred Percent. It's. I mean, everything we're talking about right now. I just keep thinking attachment, attachment, attachment.
0: Yeah, and the more we understand this, I think the better we're going to be able to prevent stuff like this. Exactly. For young, if someone could go back in time and pay attention to this family, someone could have helped so that Dahmer Mm -hmm. would get his attachment needs met, and then he wouldn't grow up to do this. I mean, for every one Dahmer that does something like this, you have tens of thousands of people that grow up to be physically abusive or sexually abusive. And, you know, they never murder anybody, but they definitely create destruction in their life. Exactly. And so, so we need to pay attention to this as a society. And I just don't feel like we're doing this, you know, like the, uh, Adam Lonza kid who killed all those children in Sandy hook elementary, Right. very similar situation. Now I think he did have autism, but, that's secondary to the fact that he was alone and isolated and neglected, and um, and without any support. The family didn't have any support, and I just, I always just return to this idea of just like if we just had more tax dollars and a program to reach out to these families with social workers, with programs, with activities, uh, you know, some kind of get the kid out of the house and have some fun. I think uh, we could prevent some of these cases from happening. I don't know if you're going to be writing about that in your in your.
1: Um, I I kind of have to keep it more like without sort of any suggestion, just more about his, you know, his his life and growing up and everything that we're talking about. And this is fantastic. Um, but I totally agree with you. And I mean, this can go, I mean, this conversation could go in a thousand different directions. I mean, if you look at not only recognizing the factors that lead these young boys to and it's not you know unfortunately it appears to be the majority of just males you know we could also take it in a in a totally different direction talk about the construction of masculinity and how not only is there isolation and the lack of attachment but then the social constructions of what it means to be a man you know constantly bombarding these young boys as well i mean so there's a, a ton of factors in right. all of this
0: yeah Uh, Well, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's continue that talk. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Kristen is a patron of the podcast, and so uh, when you're patrons of the podcast, you get access to all of our deep dives, and you also um, occasionally maybe – get on the show yourself. Like Kristen. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the question about gender is interesting because the vast majority of these kinds of serial killers are men. There are certainly women who will do this as well, but they're much less frequent, like much, much less frequent. And so the question is, is why is that? And one uh, very strong hypothesis factor that you pointed out, is socialization. Men are socialized to dominate, to externalize their problems, to not reach out for help, to isolate, to be sexually strong, so to speak. And so that obviously is a factor, whereas girls are socialized to be submissive, to be relationally oriented, to maybe ask for help in situations like that. Um, Also boys are parented differently. Their boys attachment needs are tended to differently and to some extent less so because we think of boys as being more emotionally independent when they are not. And uh, so there's all that. Um, But the other thing is, is there's some people arguing for genetic and evolutionary ideas, which are difficult to measure. But I think, you know, are discussable shall we say (laughs) in that um, testosterone is associated with certain behaviors which you know of course could be a could be a factor there's also sexual differences sexual preference or sexual um, behavioral differences between men and women when we look at large groups of people it's hard to know if those are it's hard to know how much of that is socialized and how much of that is quote unquote genetic but some people are saying that men have a, a greater likelihood of, of being um, interested in short-term relationships and, because they can procreate and move on in life. And uh, there's all sorts of political problems with that argument. But
1: You mean the whole investment about a woman, you know, she's got the nine months to invest and the men can, can uh, you know, basically inseminate as many women as they want right exactly that whole theory, which is technically true but yeah. at the same time i th- i feel like it's reaching a little bit when we want to talk about the construction of you know masculinity or why men do what they do when it especially as it pertains to a case like Dahmer or you know that great um podcast you did on Elliot Roger, you know
0: yeah, it's,
1: I feel the connection there is a little weak, but
0: <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It's just hard it to is know. Possible. And it's a politically recursive process in that as we create a story that this is true, then we continue to perpetuate that story and socialize people to, to live that story. Exactly. And then that confirms our story that men are this way and women are that way. And so it, it doesn't, uh, it's, it doesn't lend itself to empirical observation. And again, we'd have to, we would have to experiment. We'd have to raise hundreds of little babies in one set of environment and hundreds of other babies in another set of environment and see if there's difference between men and women. And we just, we'll just, we're just never going to be able to do that, So, or at least in our lifetime. And so, well,
1: we fortunately have ethics. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, maybe one day we'll have AI that can do that. But even then, it's like, well, you're torturing these little sentient AI creatures that- <laughs> but the um the uh other thing about that is that the other the other evolutionary theory is that men um evolved so so which I find to be somewhat um uh compelling in that uh, it, so we evolved as a pool of genetics we don't necessarily evolve as individuals right so a pool of a species. Have, has to have a, a system that perpetuates itself. So, for example, if if your if your genetic pool has some homosexuals in it, that's okay as as long as it's not too many. And there might be some advantage to having a percentage of homosexuals in any genetic pool because uh, homosexual people provide some. Evolutionary advantage to the pool to the tribe, right. and and so that's why we see consistent variations. So some you know, there's always a percentage of people who have ADHD, and there's always a percentage of people who blah blah blah. You know, there, so it's a so if we look at a pool. Because being homosexual is the direct opposite of evolutionary advantage because you're not procreating. You're not having sex with the opposite sex. And, of course, some people would say, well, homosexuals in history, they do have sex with the opposite sex sometimes. But anyway, my point is is that if we look at it through that model, it's possible that we evolved to have a certain percentage of our population to have dark tetrad traits. And the quote-unquote advantage to that is that those individuals will procre- are much more likely to procreate very quickly because they're extremely um, manipulative and narcissistic and they don't take the time to develop relationships. They might even have sadistic qualities where they just want to take, you know, they, they're selfish and they act quickly. And so, therefore, that small percentage of people are going to uh, spread their genes to, the, to throughout you know, uh, the the pool because uh, of that reason. But you can never have too many of those people because it would destroy the tribe and cause too much destruction, and everything would fall apart. So if if one tribe had half of their individuals were dark tetrad individuals, that tribe would fizzle out really quickly because they're all killing each other and hating each other. But if you have one percent or point five percent of your population as these people, then that'll, it'll tend to stick around in the population because it's limited and there is somewhat of a procreation advantage to that popping up in, in the population.
1: I love that you brought that up. Actually, there's there's a section in my textbook and I won't go into it because uh, you've just said it, but I love that you brought it up about how that might be a slight evolutionary advantage to having a small population of people with the dark traits and that there is some sort of benefit, Um, you know, whether you want to connect that to, I wouldn't say necessarily good gene theory, but, you know, the selfish gene or anything like that. But um, I do love that you brought that up and connecting that to the dark traits because I think there is something there.
0: Again, impossible to test. Uh, I could also see it being, uh, I also consider the hypothesis that, the dark Dark tetrad traits are an outgrowth of bad parenting and mm-hmm. and and we in the past, when we had uh, less um, isolation and you were much more likely to be closer to your parents at all times and your tribe that there's a possibility that a hundred thousand years ago there wasn't a single individual on the planet who had who had traits like Jeffrey Dahmer because of we were more natural and more within our natural environment and much less likely to exhibit that sort of thing. So, um, I could see that being true too. It's sort of like saying, you know, we evolved to, uh, smoke cigarettes and develop, uh, lung cancer that that's, uh, there, you know, we evolved for a certain percentage of people to smoke cigarettes and <laughs> develop lung cancer. All of be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, Just because we observe a percentage of people doing something and having a tendency to something and having a consequence from that something doesn't mean that it has some correlation with our evolution. Um, right. It could just be an outgrowth of like the way our society is, the, the way that it is today. And I, there's just no way to know the answer to that question.
1: I just don't want to at all say that it's a benefit. I don't want anyone to think, oh, I'm saying it's a benefit to mankind to have you know, serial killers out there. It's not what I mean, but in terms of looking at you know anyway i think i said it
0: yeah yeah <laughs>
1: before before sticking my foot back into my mouth any deeper <laughs>
0: uh <laughs> you know you get used to that feeling when you're on a podcast uh <laughs> you just say like well at any given anything i say is potentially foot in mouth you know I mean, there's probably someone who accidentally like got their actual foot in their actual mouth and they're now offended by the fact that we're using that phrase <laughs> and they'll, they'll email me and they'll be like, how dare you, uh, you know, marginalize people who have the foot and mouth condition, you know, anyway. Um, well, we've been talking about the dark tetrad, so let's get into that. Well, why don't you yeah. start, start us off there?
1: Um, so a little bit of the research I did on The Dark Tetrad was, it was as, as it pertains to Jeffrey Dahmer specifically, was that, first of all, he would be low in agreeableness. Um, so due to his difficulties in social relationships um, and the, the displayed behaviors associated that, you know, during his adolescence, he was, not only was he a bit of a prankster, which you could connect maybe to, I wouldn't necessarily say conscientiousness or extroversion, but um, in terms of low agreeableness, it was not uncommon for him to drink. Um, And research says that low agreeableness is fundamental to violent behavior. I don't know what you think about that.
0: Yeah. uh, The agreeableness issue obviously makes a lot of sense because of his upbringing. He wasn't treated in in an agreeable way and had to develop defenses against being open and agreeable to other people to Defend himself, Mm -hmm. so that makes a lot of sense. And the drinking part, I conceptualize as a deadening or numbing effect to his disorganized attachment woes. When you have disorganized attachment, really minute by minute, you're suffering. You're you're anxious. You're you you have this. If any of you have ever had a dog that can't stand being alone, and as soon as you walk out the door to go to work, it's the dog is barking and going crazy and chewing the floor and just going crazy that's what disorganized attachment is like for for humans but it's and one of the best ways to get rid of that feeling that's available to even young peop- young people is drinking alcohol so that that was my conceptualization of of was, was alcohol use
1: yeah, um, I totally agree there. And and then they also say that um, Jeffrey Dahmer has low conscientiousness, um, which makes sense as well. You know, he dropped out of college. He was discharged from the military. Again, he would go to work and school under the influence. Um, and so, yeah, his behavior just seems to be, you know, that lack of responsibility and dependability, that type of thing.
0: Right. And when, again, you have disorganized attachment, you're struggling so bad from minute to minute. Also, when you were a young child and your brain was developing its prefrontal cortex, you weren't treated well enough. And so your brain probably didn't develop normally. And therefore, you don't have the same controls or planning procedures in your brain. And he definitely exhibited that. He had a really hard time Planning ahead, I mean, even in his crimes he d- people frame him as this like evil genius, but he did it without much um, he didn 't hide it much like it 's actually weird that he got away with it for so long
1: oh my gosh, I know i mean that 's really i mean the, the fact that not only was he targeting a a community that is already oppressed. But there's reports of the, you know, he held a young man sort of hostage. I'm not going to get into the gruesome things that he did to this young man. But the police actually came over to his house. I mean, this was the, the young man had run away, and the
0: cops came he, over. Well, and he
1: was very. He able, was 14.
0: Mortal. He wasn't a young man. He was 14 years old. If I if I think you're talking about the same person, a young
1: this, the young man that ran away from Dahmer, right?
0: Yeah, the Asian American right. kid, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. he was 14, and the police showed up, and. Labeled it a domestic dispute, and and the kid was you know was going to be one of Dahmer's victims, comes running out of his apartment naked, bleeding, saying, (sighs) uh, but the police show up and I think I mean who knows what happened we're not there but I think one they're like oh these two gay people and they just walk exactly I also it was an Asian uh, immigrant and. You probably was like, Oh, it's just this dirty Asian immigrant. I don't know. It's just speculation. But
1: Oh, racism yeah. definitely played a part in right. the, you know, not only I don't want don't want to say that Jeffy was racist, but I mean in terms of his selection, there was definitely a motive there. And then of course on the part of the police, it was a perfect cover.
0: Yeah. I mean, just a little comment again on the speculate because he did primarily target people of color and then more specifically Asian, uh, African-Americans is when they asked him about that, there's so you know, were you racist? Were you trying to kill black people? Is that the whole thing? And he said that he was only looking for people who he could willing, who he could get to dominate. He was just, he said he was looking for good looking young men oh. and, um, maybe he had a thing for black people or people of color. I don't know, but I find it much more likely that, that what he said is true, that he was looking for people who he could manipulate. And I think he must've thought he could manipulate people of color more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, because he's white and maybe he thought, and maybe it's even true somehow that he would, he would be more trusted by people of color or something, or I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's hard to speculate. And
0: yeah, but, but I don't think from the evidence that he had some kind of, thing like i'm going to kill all the black people in this town or something you know i don't know
1: i agree with you there i think it was just a lot of it was you know there was racism racism is, is already prevalent there's already these stereotypes it was more of a convenience that's the way i feel about it but yeah
0: yeah because he needed some any he, and he apparently didn't care if they were not white and so anyway but yeah getting back to what we were saying before he was pretty bad planner and It's pretty amazing that he got away with it for so long. I mean, there were so many people in his apartment building who would say they would smell funny things. They would hear sawing in the middle of the night. There were all these different police incidents of assault and sexual assault. He had been convicted of sexual assault in the past, of exposing himself, and it's just evidence that our police just don't have the resources, and particularly back then, to uh, be preventative. And um, and then the whole thing when he gets caught, he essentially just lets the police into his house, into his apartment, and lets them search his, his house. And then they find all these Polaroids and the body parts like right away. And yeah, this is not a conscientious fellow. This is not an evil genius. Although he did have a high IQ, he was not an evil genius.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because he was rated high on attention-seeking. And then I want to ask your opinion on it because you've done a couple of really awesome deep dives into narcissism. And so they, not only with the high novelty, high attention-seeking, they... Rate Dahmer, moderate in narcissism because of his, you know, attempted, um, or attempts to draw attention to himself, um, his bizarre, you know, attention seeking behaviors in early adolescence, you know, do you think that he is narcissistic?
0: No, I don't. No. I, th- I okay. think that it's, it's tempting to draw that connection because we associate narcissism with these kinds of people Charles Manson definitely was narcissistic. Ted Bundy was definitely narcissistic, and you can see it in their behavior. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't fit that profile to my eyes. Now we're talking about squishy constructs and opinion and observation, so I can't claim that I have some special uh, access to the truth. But in my my conceptualization of narcissism, he he doesn't he doesn't possess it.
1: I definitely agree with you there. I just think because narcissism is connected to the, the tetrad. Um, and they do, some people say that, you know, it has a correlation with, you know, uh, masochism and, and Machiavellianism. So I just thought to get that would be interesting to hear your opinion on that.
0: Yeah. To look at Manson and Bundy, Manson wanted to, a cult you know and right. he was narcissistic prior to him doing any evil you know murderous acts and he wanted people to worship him and he wanted to separate other people from he wanted to dominate people in while they were living too and 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 he uh after being arrested had these very grand ideas that he was some god some you know he he had all the signs ted bundy had similar but different kinds of presentations that, uh, you know, he was a genius. He could always escape. He represented himself in court. He, there was just all these signs that Bundy had narcissistic personality. Uh, Dahmer doesn't have any of that. He was alone and, you know, pointing towards his attention seeking behavior when he was a teenager, he was desperate for acceptance from his peers. And he, because he was so confused when he interacted with other people, one he randomly landed on a behavior that ended up getting him at least some attention and and some people to like him, which was to act like the fool. He just acted like a like a weirdo, and people thought it was funny. They just and then some people actually went up to him and said, like, you know, come on, Dahmer, do the Dahmer. Like you've you've seen my friend Dahmer the movie.
1: I have the book the the comic book here too. Or it's a hardbound book called My Friend Dahmer. But I actually there's a movie.
0: Yeah, they, they adapted that 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 uh, comic into a movie. It's pretty good. I
1: haven't seen that, but I will definitely be watching that this weekend.
0: Yeah, it's really good. I thought they really, from what I understand of the history, they totally nailed it. So the the movie My Friend Dahmer depicts Dahmer in his like senior year in high school when this other guy at school ends up kind of befriending him and treats him kind of like his his sidekick or his mascot or something. He, the other guy is kind of cool and accepted by other guys, but, and he just, he just takes this, he's just sort of fascinated with Dahmer because Dahmer just seems like he's above it all or something. And it's interesting, just a little side note is that one of the things that they depict in the movie that is talked about by biographers is that in high school, Dahmer would uh, at, in the middle of school, Or in the middle of the mall, he would flop down on the ground and flop around. Kind of like he was having a seizure, but more just obviously acting like a dork. And most people would be horrified by it. They would look at it and go like, what is that guy doing? Whereas the friends would be standing around just laughing their butts off. Well, When I was in high school, me and my friends did the exact same thing. (laughs) Um,
1: I did that kind of stuff in high school too. I mean, I think that's pretty typical of most kids to do sort of outrageous acts like that for attention.
0: Right. And especially when you sort of feel like you're the misfit group, right? Like like you're already like, well, I don't care about being accepted by by the, you know, higher-ups in the popularity ladder. And so um, I, I reject that. It's, it was sort of a punk thing that I remember us thinking. It's sort of punk rock. To Like we would, in the middle of a, a dance at, in high school, everyone's dancing to uh, Sheila E. or Prince or something. And one of us, or maybe a bunch of us, would just fall to the floor in the middle of the dance floor and just flop around. <laughs> we, we we called it wigging out. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know I where, think you I, and
1: I grew up in the same era.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we thought it was hilarious, but everyone else thought it was like, what are those dudes doing? Like it was horrifying to the rest of the school, especially like the teachers, but we just thought it was the funniest thing we ever could have done. Right. So Dahmer does this and gets attention. Now if you look at it through a certain lens, you're like, oh he's narcissistic, he wants attention. But and you know it's definitely in the direction of narcissism because it's it is trying to get attention but i he doesn't fit the full p- profile of someone right. with narcissistic personality spectrum now if we're looking at the dark tetrad narcissism is one of them the main one that he does suffer from is psychopathy he he lacked empathy he lacked the normal ability to care about other people's feelings and to care about the fate of other people and to have remorse to such an extent that you would change your behavior. He did not have that um, to the extent that he needed to, to stop him from doing that. Now you could also say that his compulsion was so strong that it overrode his empathy. But I would suspect that he did indeed have psychopathy because even if you did have a massive compulsion to rape and kill that you wouldn't be able to do that, especially like the manipulation of the bodies afterwards and the eating. Like you would have, you have to have really just no care about other people's bodies and the feelings of other people. Do you agree with that?
1: A hundred percent. There's none of this respect. It feels like there's a very lack of respect for, I used to actually be a funeral director for years, and one of the things with the deceased is there's this, you still recognize the autonomy of the body and that they are still an entity and a, and a human being, even though their soul is left. And he, I think that's just a general of most human beings is that you recognize that that person is still a person, regardless whether there's, that their soul is gone. And he lacked that completely.
0: Wait. You were a funeral director?
1: <laughs> I was a funeral director in bomber for 10 years.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I loved it actually. It was really fun.
0: Yeah, I've, I've uh, talked with someone else who, same, and I, I'm fascinated because I'm, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, I think about death every day. I think about the fact we're all headed there, you know, yep. at some point it's going to happen. And... I don't necessarily like the fact that we're headed there, but I accept it yeah um so i'm I'm interested in your experience on that, but to keep it i guess relevant to this conversation, does your history have anything to do with you're interested in this topic or does it <laughs> does it inform? you in this topic at all i don't know
1: i think i've always been a little bit more fascinated with things that maybe other people aren't i mean when i tell people i'm a funeral director i get the same reaction that you just had it's a it's a field of fascination and excitement for people and interest and ooh what it was it like I all oh, people always want to know about the bodies or the weird things I've seen or you know how hard of a job it was um, so I I don't know for me just it it felt very natural I got into it when I was just turning 30 um, I don't know if you remember the TV show six feet under yeah oh great show and I, it sounds kind of it sounds sort of flighty to say I got into a career based on a TV show, but I just felt that the show represented it quite well. And so I did my research and I just loved being able to connect with the families and help them through that time. But then at the same time, you feel a bit like a mad scientist and you're working behind the scenes with chemicals and you see people at all different ranges of decomp and to be able to turn them into something that was viewable. Um, But as it relates to Dahmer, I mean, yeah, I've always been fascinated with, with death and dying and, and the biological side, what happens to us after we go is, you know, can be pretty grotesque, but I mean, I was always right in there as close as I could get to see the different changes that we go through.
0: Are you going to write about that in your paper?
1: um I can't get into what I like my personal experiences I have to keep it on Dahmer but I have actually been keeping notes for the last few years and maybe one day might write um maybe a memoir about my experiences as a funeral director and then going back to school to study psychology
0: yeah that's interesting uh I mean to me the interest I have isn't so much in the gory details it's the effect it had on your understanding of life itself and the understanding of the meaning of life. Uh, It's the same fascination I have with people who work in hospice and that kind of thing. It's being so close to the reality of, of death is Mm -hmm. um, I find just so meaningful to me. It's, it's, it's less of an interest and more of, of I I'm jealous of that. The wisdoms that you pulled away from those experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, before becoming a funeral director, I was one hundred percent a lot more <sighs> fearful of death. And in the ten years that I worked in the industry, I've become I I've become very accepting of my place. I mean, obviously, I think about death all the time, and I don't want to die either, but. I, just being around it for that long, I'm very, I'm okay with it. And actually while I was a funeral director, I actually suffered with my mother's death and it helped me deal with her passing in a very healthy way. I think if I hadn't per just for me personally, if I hadn't been around or in the industry, I probably would have um, suffered from a lot more complicated grief than I did.
0: Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So okay, we've gone over two of the four, which is narcissism and psychopathy. Let's get to Machiavellianism. Yes, named after Niccolo Machiavelli, Machiavelli, who wrote about politics in Italy, I believe. Um, this is the personality trait that involves being manipulative, making plans to be so. You're you're making, you know, you're premeditated and you're strategizing about how you're going to manipulate other people to your own gains, to your own um, uh, benefit somehow, or your own sick pleasure or something. Uh, what do you think about that in relation to Jeffrey Dahmer?
1: Um, I don't know if I necessarily think he has he's necessarily too much of a high mac. I mean. He was manipulative, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused on this, this one of that, of the, of the Tetrad.
0: Right. I I agree. I don't think he, I mean, again, I think when people don't understand the, the full nature of Machiavellianism spectrum in the same way that a lot of people don't understand narcissistic spectrum, they will just look at it and say, well, obviously he was manipulative. He, he tricked people into coming back to his apartment. He tricked them, you know, he, Lied to the police, blah, blah blah, and that's not Machiavellianism. That's that's someone who's trying to do something that they know is illegal and knows that other people won't let them do, and they have to make some some plans for that. Uh, whereas someone like Bundy and and Manson had much more of it in that their plans, both of them were quite elaborate, particularly Manson, and they thought about things way in advance. They they had, like with Manson, he had to coordinate many, many people and he had to, to plan ahead about how to manipulate them to get them into his family, how to get them away from their family, how to get them to have sex with him, how to get them to be violent, how to get them to go to kill uh, other people and how to make sure that uh certain people went, you know, it's it's a it was a very large plan and his whole thing was how do I manipulate other people? How do I get them to be in my cult? Uh that's much more Machiavellianism and much more obvious Machiavellianism than uh what Dahmer presented. So yeah, I agree. So, uh, absolutely.
1: Because Dahmer was much more impulsive. Right. And that it's kind of the opposite.
0: Right. So we have, and as evidence of this, Dahmer was well into, he had already killed at least 17 people, and many of them within the, you know, the past uh, couple years upon getting caught, and the last guy that uh, he tried to kill that he didn't succeed in killing, he was, um, uh, he brought him back to his place, and apparently they were uh, hanging out in his apartment for like uh, several hours
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the whole time uh, he he's freaking out <laughs> this guy and yeah. this, this guy is like how do I get out of here well that's not a very uh, Machiavellian thing to do right like no. he clearly was like I want to keep this guy alive but it's obviously not in my best interest to keep him alive because he could always escape and all I have is a knife I don't have a gun or I haven't locked the front door, <laughs> you know, yep. that if the guy wants to, you can run out. And plus the guy could punch me, he could overpower me. So this is not, that's not a Machiavellian uh, trait, especially when you think about the fact that he had an IQ of 120, 121, which is, you know, he's not a, he's someone who can logically figure out that that's not a safe thing to do. So that's not Machiavellianism, but anyway,
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so Sorry, high I think a... 120 oh. is above, it's quite above the average too.
0: Absolutely, and it's um, probably at the ninety percentile range.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so yeah. Uh, so high psychopathy doesn't seem to be narcissistic. Doesn't seem to be Machiavellian. And then we have number four, which is sadistic. So this was added to the dark triad because the previous three um, were found by some theorists to be not necessarily associated with harmful behavior. So you could be a psychopath, you could be narcissistic, you could be Machiavellian, and still not Necessarily be driven to harm other people. Uh, you really need sadism, and so a lot of times people think, well, if you have the dark triad, you know, you're you're a sadist, and it's like, no, uh, you need you need to add this sadistic trait because this is the trait that involves enjoying the hurting of other people. It it, it you get a thrill when other people are harmed, and you get a thrill from watching other people get harmed. You also get a thrill from harm from actually you're the one harming other people. And sometimes this, this is, this is a sexual sadism. Whereas you have a sexual compulsion to harm other people, i.e. to rape them, dominate them, all this, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think about sadism and Jeffrey Dahmer?
1: I, well, I would have to say 100%. I mean, it seems that, you know, in terms of sadism, he was, I mean, we can even connect his sexual arousal to, you know, sadistic, say uh, rape rape, you know, and um, he liked the physical suffering. Um, and there was, you know, the extreme murder, the way he would mutilate these bodies, his fixation with the object um, and him getting aroused as well by models and, and dummies and that type of thing. Um, he, Seemed to really like that enjoyment of the power and control of sort of like consuming the body, consuming the other, consuming a person and making them feel degrade or he would degrade them even after they had died. I mean, that just screams sadism to me.
0: Yeah, exactly. Particularly as he's describing from an early age prior to him actually raping anybody and killing anybody, he had an intense fantasy and compulsion to what he would his words is dominate people sexually mm-hmm. and it became you know his primary way of getting sexual arousal was ideas of what he would say dominate and we would say rape and right. so it's a classic condition it's it's pretty rare that someone would have this but it's common enough that we have a label for it and we actually used to have or there was a proposal to include it as a personality disorder sadistic personality disorder or sexual sadist personality disorder i don't know why we're not including it in the
1: really story. i didn't yeah. know that
0: it makes a little sense because antisocial does not encapsulate this this condition
1: no it doesn't
0: but it often is associated with it and i think wrongfully so because most antisocial people would never do anything like this so sexual sadism. And the other thing is is you can actually have sexual sadism or sadism and not have psychopathy interestingly
1: right yeah, no that's right
0: yeah you can you can have a compulsion to rape, a compulsion to kill, an enjoyment of watching you know people being harmed, but actually feel bad about it and uh, and not actually want to act on it because you actually do care about other human beings and so so that's why they call it the dark tetrad because although these are four related personality traits that are correlated often they're not always in every individual you don't you have to tease them out you know right uh, so yeah well i'm glad we're in agreement about the the dark tetrad that's that's a good feeling
1: yes and i've this has been amazing i've learned so much and uh wow i'm i just don't even know what to say
0: uh do, do you have not- any other questions at the-
1: um <laughs> At the moment, actually, I don't. I we've kind of nailed every single question that I had. I mean, if I wish I'd come up with more.
0: (laughs) So, so you're in a master's program at doctoral program, UBC. I'm
1: actually finishing up my undergrad. Okay. So after the funeral directing for ten years, I decided I had a lot of families coming up to me and wanting counsel. And as a funeral director, it's, it's illegal. You can't provide counsel. Um, but I realized that I would connect with people in quite a deep way. So that's why I decided to go back to school. So I'm finishing up my third year, um, like I said, majoring in personality and then minoring in social justice. But I want to focus, sorry, majoring in psychology and minoring in social justice, but I want to focus on personality disorders specifically. That is one of my um, main areas of interest at school. And then hopefully um, a master's program and then a PhD.
0: Wow. Are you going to remain a funeral director during that time in school?
1: I actually have stopped funeral directing, so I haven't done that since I've been in school. It's um, quite a lot to be in school full-time and work, so I've been fortunate enough to sort of take time off and just focus on my studies, and and, uh, being a mature student, (laughs) I find that I have to not necessarily work twice as hard as everybody else, but, you know, it's, it takes me a little longer, not necessarily longer to retain any of the information. I'm quite, you know, i I think I'm very smart, but, um, you know, there can be a few challenges in terms of physical exhaustion. I, I can't be up until 11 o'clock at night studying like most kids. So
0: yeah, totally. Right. What do you plan on doing after you graduate? Uh, um, career, wise.
1: Ideally, I used to want to go into counseling, but ideally now what I would like to do is maybe teach, um, I'm cl- being it's one of the great things about being a mature student is I'm at the same age as all the teachers <laughs> so I tend to bond with them uh, quite closely and so I've been given a lot of really really amazing opportunities like a potential TA position for next term and um, I do a guest lecture over at another local college um, every semester on uh, personality disorders um, so, because of these opportunities i 'm actually looking to maybe become a professor
0: yeah, I think you 'd be great at it I th- or you already are and thank you. if i didn 't know if you hadn't you know gave, given me details, I would have assumed that you were already a teacher and already graduated or something by the oh, way thank you by,
1: yeah, by I way. love what i I love this I love psychology, I love learning, and I love interacting like you know you're a professor so you understand when you're in front of a room and you see the light bulbs go off in the students eyes yeah it's incredible
0: that literally happened on wednesday i was uh talking to my students and one of the lights in the classroom suddenly decided to turn on it wasn't working (laughs) and it turned on right above someone's head and i made a joke and i said oh you must have just had an idea and they were like, well, actually I did. <laughs> <Just> like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I um, love that. I yeah. love that. Yeah. It's so that's hopefully the goal. And I, um, like I said, I've got some amazing, this, the teachers at the University of British Columbia are just so amazing. And a, a couple of them in particular have really taken me under their wings and have given me opportunities, um, you know, in terms of publishing articles and and working on different um, research projects, and I mean, I think that's available to every student at the university. But you have to really hustle, and um, you know, you do it, you see it, and um, yeah. I think I'm really lucky. I think there's a, I think in just in terms of the path ahead of me, I'm I'm really fortunate. And if you love what you're doing, it makes life a lot easier too.
0: Yeah. Tell me about it. And I'm so uh, glad that you're focusing on personality disorders because as I have to talk about, it's to some extent becoming a lost art in our Mm -hmm. profession, which is just really silly to me. Uh, The combination of attachment and personality is so powerful um, to clinical work and to my personal life um, that um, it, It bothers me that a lot of people will graduate with their master's or doctorate and they don't really understand narcissistic personality or or psychopathy very well. And I just think that it's great that you're going to become a professor and you'll inspire other people to focus on personality, which is great.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I have a, a teacher that I just love. His name is Dr. David King, and I mean, this is the class that I'm writing the paper for. And I've always wanted to focus on personality disorders, as you just said. It's very close to my my heart as well. Um, mental disorders run in my family, so I know have a few people as well as friends who have personality disorders, and they're not focused on nearly enough. And um, you know that whole spectrum of, you know, cause somebody it's, there's, there's a lot of gray area there and, you know, there can be, you know, somebody may not just be a hundred percent borderline. Um, so I think there's a lot of work and research that still needs to be done. And on all of the 10, I find that a lot of, a lot of focus also is just on psychopathy and borderline and not enough on schizotypal or narcissistic. So I need, there's work that needs to be done there. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I would love to, to teach perhaps a class on personality or personality disorders as well as focusing on how social, um, socialization and gender, um, and attachment, how all that contributes. I mean, just what I've seen and witnessed in my own life from the people around me. And again, from what I've learned, it's just an area of psychology that needs a lot more
0: focus. Well, it's been great to talk with you, Kristen. Um, I never, I never know how these things are going to go, but I, uh, was uh, delightfully surprised at how fun and interesting a conversation this was.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very excited. Thank you so much. This was an absolute thrill. I listen to your podcast all the time. I have a lot of friends that listen to it. So you will always have a dedicated listener here. And honestly, for any students out there listening, supplement your homework with this podcast. (laughs) It has definitely kept me at a 4.0.
0: <laughs> well that is it for that episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining us out there please take care of yourself why should people take care of themselves kristen
1: well just to have a happy life yeah yeah